right, everyone, it is time to get going. It's 12.30. Hope you've had a good lunch. If you got here late, we've got seconds. You can grab it afterwards. Take a little to-go container. They were here early this week. That's right. We ran out last week, so people got here on time. You never know. We're in Judges, chapter 9. We're finishing up the Gideon cycle. And chapter 9 is about Gideon's legacy, even though Gideon's not in the chapter, because he is mentioned. And back in chapter 8 last week, there was a note right before the end of the chapter that it was just a little passing reference. It said that uh, verse 30 of chapter 8, Gideon had 70 sons of his own, for he had many wives. That was already a danger sign we saw. It's never good when there are many wives in the Bible. Um, chart it out every time there are many wives one can be rough rough, but I don't know I'll take one right now but um, whenever there are many is a bad thing is never good good never comes from uh, multiplying wives or any of the other things that the kings were told not to do and we saw that Gideon did that and so he had 70 sons and then he also had a concubine who lived in Shechem, a slave woman. And he had a son by that. So he had 70 sons and an illegitimate son as well, named Abimelech. And Abimelech means, my dad is king. And so everything about Gideon's life was establishing a dynasty, a kingship. Even though he said with his words, I'm not going to be your king, God's going to be your king. But his actions were kingly actions in the ancient Near East. And we see that very specifically in this chapter because now his legacy, his son, is going to continue on that same trajectory. And so chapter 9 starts, it says, Abimelech, son of Jeroboam. Remember, Jeroboam was Gideon's other name. It means let Baal contend. And it was because of him tearing down the altar of Baal. And he's only referred to by that name in this chapter. Abimelech, son of Jeroboam, or Gideon, went to his mother's brother's so his mother's family, remember, he is a child of a, of a slave woman in Shechem, a concubine. And so he goes to his family, his mother's side in Shechem. And he said to them and to all his mother's clan, ask all the citizens of Shechem. Now NIV, every time NIV says citizens in this, past, in this chapter, the word is lords. And it's the word Baal. The word for lord is Baal, Baal. So every time, so it's when you read the word citizens, if you're reading NIV, it's always the lords of Shechem, the Baals of Shechem. And the, there's a wordplay going on because the deity of Shechem is Baal Barith. And so everything about this chapter is focused, is the word Baal appears everywhere in this chapter, even including Gideon's name. And the message is clear that this is the, like we've seen before, this is the Canaanization of Israel. Their further descent into being Canaanites. And Baal was the chief deity. And so by referring to the people of Shechem, the leaders as the Baals of Shechem, the lords of Shechem, the narrator is just kind of uh, uh, twisting that in a little more. So Gideon says to all the lords of Shechem, which is better for you, to have all 70 of Jeroboam's sons rule over you, Gideon's sons, or just one man? Remember, I am your flesh and blood. So he goes and he says, hey, Would you rather have all of Gideon's sons ruling over you? Which implies what? That his sons were ruling over them. 
that Gideon had set up a family dynasty. Even though he had personally said, I'm not going to be king, God's going to be king, his sons were now ruling over all of Israel, or at least in the process of ascending and, and being a ruling dynasty. So Abimelech, the son of the, the outcast, looks at his 70 half-brothers and sees the contempt probably with which his family lineage is treated since he's half-breed, so to speak, in their eyes and half-Shechemite and half-Israelite. And he says, uh, remember, I'm your own flesh and blood. When the brothers repeated all this to the lords of Shechem, they were inclined to follow Abimelech. And in Hebrew it says, their hearts reached out to Abimelech. For they said, he is our brother. So all the people of Shechem were like, yeah, we should follow this Abimelech. He's one of ours. Gideon's sons, Jeroboam's sons, they're not, they're not us. They're not Shechemites. They're, they're, you know, we need, he's our brother. Now that's the irony, because we're about to see what he does to his actual brothers. But they said, he's our brother. They gave him 70 shekels of silver from the temple of Baal Berith. That's their God. This is again, they are a Canaanite city that remained among Israel. They were supposed to have been driven out and never were. And Abimelech used it to hire reckless adventurers. Literally in Hebrew, men of empty recklessness. Reckless adventurers, mercenaries, who became his followers. He went to his father's home in Ophrah and on one stone murdered his 70 brothers, the sons of Jeroboam. So he takes these 70 mercenaries and he goes and he executes and he ritualistically executes. That's what putting to death on one stone means. The connotation of that is like a sacrifice almost. He slaughters his brothers, his half-brothers, in order to ascend to power. This is very Game of Thrones-ish type stuff. This is the intrigue. This is, this is what kings in the world of Canaan did. He's acting perfectly like any other ancient Near East king. He's, gonna act, he's acting like exactly like later Israelite kings are going to act. This is how you seize power. You want it, you take it. So he took a armed force, mercenaries, put to death, slaughtered his 70 brothers on one stone, the sons of Jeroboam. But Jotham, the youngest son of Jeroboam, escaped by hiding. So it was actually 69 of his brothers that he murdered. But the youngest one got away. Then all the lords of Shechem and Beth Milo gathered beside the tree, the great tree at the pillar in Shechem to crown Abimelech king. This is the antithesis of what God has wanted to happen. Deuteronomy specifically in 17 said, when the Lord chooses a king for you. But that's not what's happened. Through a bloody coup, through a violent slaughter, he has basically seized the power of kingship. <clears throat> Verse 7, when Jotham was told about this, he climbed up on the top of Mount Gerizim and shouted to them. So Mount Gerizim overlooks the town of Shechem. And this is where, if you remember from Joshua, this is in Deuteronomy, this is where the covenant was ratified, Mount Gerizim. This is where the covenant ceremony took place. And, and the covenant curses and the covenant blessings were pronounced. Mount Ebal and Mount Gerizim, right there in this place. So Jotham is standing on the place where Israel made the covenant with God generations ago. And he's going to basically call down what becomes a curse on them. And he says, listen to me, lords of Shechem, so that God may listen to you. Now he's going to tell a parable. And this is not a parable, a fable. And this is considered one of the finest 
uh, examples of the genre of fable in all of ancient literature. The fable is where you have anthropomorphic characters and they're like Aesop, like Aesop's fables. They, they do things and it's to teach a moral lesson and it's, it's kind of like a parable but it's, 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 you have non-human uh, actors being involved. In this case, trees. So he says, listen to me. Uh, Lords of Shechem, so God may listen to you. One day the trees went out to anoint a king for themselves. They said to the olive tree, be our king. But the olive tree answered, should I give up my oil, which both gods and men are honored by, to hold sway over the trees? And literally the Hebrew says to wave over the trees. So the olive tree turns down. They said, be our king. The trees all go to the olive tree and say, be our king. And the olive tree says, why would I give up what I do, which is making this stuff that is so valuable? And olive oil was the most valuable commodity in Israel. Uh, even to this day, still is one of the most valuable. Why would I give up that to just wave over some trees? That's, that's the idea that the olive tree answers in this. Next, the trees said to the fig tree, come and be our king. But the fig tree replied, should I give up my fruit so good and sweet to wave over the trees? In other words, I've already, I'm busy. I'm making stuff that's good and sweet. Why would I give that up to hold sway over you guys? Then the tree said to the vine, not even a tree, a vine, come be our king. But the vine answered, should I give up my wine which cheers both gods and men to hold sway over the trees? So even the vine, not even a real tree turns them down. It's like, no, why would I do that? I'm, I'm, I'm producing this stuff that, that is good. And, and, and Now, if you're Baptist in here, let me just clue you in. Wine is considered a good thing in the Bible. Alcoholic wine. It's the excess of wine that is the bad thing. That's what's warned against. But there's numerous passages in Scripture. Psalm 46, 5, Psalm 104, 15, Ezekiel 10, 19, Zechariah 10, 17. Many times wine is a sign of blessing and favor and celebration and goodness. And it wasn't grape juice. And I say that as a Methodist, and we love our grape juice, but it was actual wine. So, that's a footnote, but we are in the Bible Belt, and sometimes it's worth noting that, because you'll hear every now and then well-meaning preachers that like to go on about uh, their favorite topic. Anyway, wine, good thing. Jesus' first miracle, he made wine. Anyway, so the, uh, the vine says to the tree, why should I give up making this good stuff in order to hold sway over trees? Why, why I'm already... All of these trees in this parable that they've gone to and said be king over us all three have answered why would i want to do that i'm already doing what i was created to do and the implication is of the parable is you don't need a king swaying over you everybody should be doing their thing what they're called to do what they're created to do and everybody will be fine that's what the message of this parable is you don't need a king to rule over you but the trees are insistent they want a king Give us a king so we can be like the other nations. They're going to echo this later in the time of Samuel. Finally, all the trees said to the thorn bush, to the shrub, the bramble, the briar, come be our king. The thorn bush said to the trees, if you really want to anoint me king over you, come and take refuge in my shade, which is a ridiculous image because it's trees and he's saying come take refuge in the shade of a thorn bush. Thornbush, even the big ones in the Middle East, they can get pretty big, but they're not going to be putting shade over any trees. So the image is a foolish image intentionally. But if not, then let fire come out of the thornbush and consume the cedars of Lebanon. And the cedars of Lebanon were the mightiest, 
biggest trees of all. It would be like us saying the redwoods of California or whatever. So <clears throat> that was the answer of the thorn was, hey, yeah, I'll rule over you if you really want me. Come on, get in my shade. But if anything's up, fire's going to come out from me and consume you. And thorn bushes at the time were known for being used as kindling. They were dry. They would catch fire. So there's a danger there in this parable. The, the trees are, are, are being led by taking, quote, shade under a thorn bush. Dry, uh, fruitless, useless, good only for kindling. And if they're not true to their word, they're going to get burned. That's the parable. Now this parable turns out to be incredibly prophetic as we're going to see. So back to what Jotham is saying. That's his parable. <clears throat> Verse 16, Now if you have acted honorably and in good faith when you made Abimelech king, he's talking to the people of Shechem, and if you have been fair to Jeroboam, that's his dad, and his family, that's him, and if you had treated him as he deserves, Gideon's legacy, and to think that my father fought for you, risked his life to rescue you from the hand of Midian, but today you've revolted against my father's family, murdered his 70 sons on a single stone, and made Abimelech, the son of this slave girl, king over the citizens of Shechem, because he's your brother? If then you've acted honorably and in good faith toward Jeroboam and his family today, may Abimelech be your joy, and may you be his too. But if you have not, which they haven't, this is all sarcastic, all of it is entirely sarcastic. But if you have not let fire come out from Abimelech and consume you, lords of Shechem and Beth Milo, and let fire come out from you, lords of Shechem and Beth Milo, and consume Abimelech. In other words, may you all burn for this. All of you. Because you've acted unfaithfully. So this is the pronouncement that Jotham makes from Mount Gerizim, the place of covenant cursing and blessings. Then Jotham fled, escaping to Be'er. And Be'er could either be a city, or it could just mean what the word means, which is well. It's a well, like you get water out of. And he could have gone and hidden somewhere, like in a well. or uh, We don't know. He just escaped. <coughs> and he lived there because he was afraid of his brother Abimelech. After Abimelech had governed Israel three years, so three years later, God sent an evil spirit between Abimelech and the lords of Shechem who acted treacherously against Abimelech. So now we come to God's uh, going to enact this parable that was told earlier. And the phrase, God sent an evil spirit, God sent a ruach ra, uh, it means spirit of disaster. Or it's like when Jonah prophesied over Nineveh, um, he prophesied disaster, calamity, ra'ah. It's the word for that. It can mean evil. But it can also just mean disaster or dissension or unrest or bad stuff. And so God sending a spirit of ra'ah, a spirit of calamity, a spirit of evil, means God's going to drive a wedge between Abimelech and the people of Shechem. And He's going to stir dissension up. Because they have already abandoned His covenant, so He has no covenant obligation to protect them whatsoever. And so now, this is the time where God is going to be treating Israel and the people of Israel kind of as they deserve instead of with grace as he's been doing throughout this entire book because they have thoroughly canonized by now they aren't even remotely worshiping Yahweh anymore and they've installed a pagan king over them so 
he did, God did this, verse 24, God did this in order that the crime against Jeroboam, Gideon's 70 sons, the shedding of their blood might be avenged on their brother Abimelech and on the citizens of Shechem who had helped him murder his brothers. In opposition to him, these citizens of Shechem, the wards of Shechem, set men on the hilltops to ambush and rob everyone who passed by, and this was reported to Abimelech. So now this is what happens. After three years, the citizens of Shechem, the lords of Shechem, the bales of Shechem decide, we're kind of going to take things into our own hands. Abimelech's ruling, but he's ruling from somewhere else. Uh, you know, things are good, but they could be better for us. So we're going to actually start robbing people. We're going to start doing what people in the ancient Near East did, which is these city-states building up their own power. And so they started setting ambushes, and they started acting unfaithfully under the rule of Abimelech. So the citizens who put him into power are now acting unruly and causing calamity on the people that pass through. Verse 26, uh, wait, yeah, in opposition to the set up hilltops, yes. Verse 26, now, Gaal, son of Ebed, new character enters the scene. Gaal, his name means loathsome. Ebed means slave, so loathsome slave son is this guy. Uh, he comes out of nowhere. Gaal, son of Ebed, moved with his brothers into Shechem, and his lords put their confidence in him. In other words, they were putting their confidence in Bumalek, but now this guy, Gaal, comes on the scene, and they, ah, this is going to be our guy now. Because he talks a big game, as we're going to see. After they'd gone out into the fields and gathered grapes and trodden them, they held a festival in the temple of their God. While they were eating and drinking, they cursed Abimelech. Then Gaal, son of Ebed, said, Who is Abimelech? And who is Shechem that we should be subject to him? Isn't he Jeroboam's son? Gideon's son? Isn't he, and isn't Zebul his deputy? So the guy that's kind of ruling over Shechem, this guy Zebul, is his deputy over the city. Serve the men of Hamor, Shechem's father. Hamor is the founder of Shechem, going all the way back to Genesis. Why should we serve Abimelech? If only this people were under my command, then I would get rid of him. I would say to Abimelech, call out your whole army. So they're celebrating, they're drinking, they're rabble-rousing, and they're bragging. And this guy, Gaal, is doing what every frat boy at every party that has one too many does. Where's the, show me the guy. I'm, I'm going to take him out. You know, just that whole drunken foolishness that's going on. That's what's happening right now. And so this guy, Gaal, is just bragging about how awesome he is. And the people of Shechem are like, yeah, yeah, this guy. Like, he's talking a big game. That's what's going on. This is just one big dude party at a pagan temple. And they're, they're cursing Abimelech. Now, if you know anything about the ancient Near East, which if you've been coming to this Bible study by now, you should. When you curse your king, you have broken the treaty that your king made with you. And you are under capital sentence. If you curse your king, you as the vassal are severing ties with that king and therefore expect nothing but that king's wrath. That's just how it is in the ancient Near East. And that's what they do. They curse Abimelech. So, <clears throat> when Zebul, the governor of the city, heard what Gaal, son of Ebed, said, he was very angry. Undercover, he sent messengers to Abimelech, saying, Gaal, son of Ebed, and his brothers have come to Shechem and are stirring up the city against you. Now then, during the night, you and your men should come and lie and wait in the fields. In the morning, at sunrise, advance against the city. When Gaal and his men come out against you, do whatever your hand finds to do. In other words, 
you need to come put this rebellion down. These guys causing trouble, and he's talking bad about you, he's cursed you, he's stirring up the city against you, and what kind of king would allow that? You need to come deal with this, handle business, is basically what he says to Abimelech. Verse 34, so Abimelech and all his troops set out by night, took up concealed positions near Shechem in four companies. Now Gaal, son of Ebed, had gone out and was standing at the entrance of the city gate just as Abimelech and his soldiers came out from their hiding place. So Gaal comes out, and all of a sudden, this guy who he had just been trashing all night is now there with all of his troops, staring him in the face in the city gates. When Gaal saw them, he said to Zebel, Look, people are coming down from the tops of the mountains. This is a ruse. This is a, hey, look behind you, is basically what he's saying. Zebel's not an idiot. He replies, uh, you're mistaking the shadows of the mountains for men. In other words, there's nobody coming. But Gaal spoke up again. Look, people are coming down from the center of the land and a company is coming from the direction of the soothsayer's tree, which is a landmark somewhere. So again, no, 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 there's people coming. Look, doing everything he can to get this army distracted who are basically standing there face to face with him saying, all right, are we going to do this or not? Then Zebul said to him, where's your big talk now? Literally in Hebrew he says, where's your mouth now? You who said, who is Abimelech that we should be subject to him? Aren't these the men you ridiculed? Go out and fight them. He's calling his bluff. It's time to put up or shut up. His, as they say, his mouth has written a check that his butt is about to cash. And that's exactly what happened. So Gaal led out the citizens of Shechem and fought Abimelech. Abimelech chased him and many fell wounded in the fight all the way to the entrance of the gate. Abimelech stayed in Aruma, and Zebul drove Gaal and his brothers out, to, uh, out of Shechem. So Abimelech beats him, and then he goes back to Aruma, where he was holding court, ruling from, and lets Zebul kind of do the mop-up operations. And the men are routed, and they're driven back into the city gate, which is the fortified area. The next day, the people of Shechem, to the people, not the people that were in rebellion, not Gaal and his buddies, but the people of Shechem, the townspeople, the next day, the people of Shechem went out to the fields, and this was reported to Abimelech. Why'd they go out to the fields? Because that's their job. They're just going out to work. Normal day, all right? This rebellion was put down last night. Now we can go back to work. It was reported to Abimelech. So he took his men, divided them into three companies, and set an ambush in the fields. When he saw the people coming out of the city, he rose to attack them. Abimelech and the companies with him rushed forward to a position at the entrance of the city gate. Then the two companies rushed upon those in the fields and struck them down. All that day, Abimelech pressed his attack against the city until he had captured it and killed its people. He then destroyed the city and scattered salt over it. So all of the people now of the city are destroyed. He routes the, uh, first the, uh, the usurper, crushes them, beats them, they flee. Then he seizes the city gates as the people go out to work so they can't get back in to, to hold up in, under siege. And then has his army kill the people out in the fields. Then he takes the city. Then he destroys it. And then in the symbolic action, he scatters salt over it. Now, that's what you would do in a field if you didn't want crops to grow, but doing it in a city was just a symbolic way of saying, may this place never be rebuilt. So he acted as the ideal Canaanite king when there's a rebellion and there's a broken covenant. And he put it down with fury and killed everybody 
He is, Abimelech is just like he did with his 70 brothers. He, he had no tolerance for anybody even remotely stepping out of line under his rule. This is a Canaanite king. On hearing this, the lords in the tower of Shechem, so there were a few that had, had gone and escaped into a tower, like a fortified part of Shechem. The few remaining holdouts from the rebellion. They went into the stronghold of the temple of El Barith, their god. That means God of the covenant. When Abimelech heard that they had assembled there, he and all his men went up Mount Zalman, which is presumably where there's going to be trees. He took an axe and he cut off some branches which he lifted on his shoulders. And he ordered the men with him, quick, do what you've seen me do. So all the men cut branches and followed Abimelech. They piled them against a stronghold and set it on fire over the people inside. So all the people in the tower of Shechem, about a thousand or an elf, men and women, also died. Total destruction. Fire consumed them. Exactly what the parable that Jotham had told. The fable that he had told. Fire came out from this thornbush king and consumed the people of Shechem who had dealt harshly with Gideon's sons. Now we might think Abimelech's off the hook, but that's not the case because remember the fable was may fire consume him as well. So may both parties be destroyed. So after this is done, next Abimelech went up to Thebes and besieged it and captured it. Now where's Thebes? It's like a little satellite town. What have they done? Nothing. He's on a rampage now. Abimelech is drunk with power and he's thinking, all right, time to expand my territory. Time to show who's really in charge here. So he besieged it and captured it. Inside the city, however, was a strong tower to which all the men and women, all the people of the city fled. That's what you did in the ancient world when there was a siege on the city. They locked themselves in and climbed up on the tower roof. Abimelech went to the tower and stormed it. So he thought, hey, I've done this before. We're going to do the same thing. We're going to burn them down as well. But as he approached the entrance to the tower to set it on fire, a woman dropped an upper millstone on his head and cracked his skull. So a millstone, you'd have a big stone, a disc shape, and then you'd have a smaller stone on top with a handle and a hole in the middle. The hole goes through both stones. You put the the grain, whatever you're grinding, on the stone. You lay the upper stone on top and you grind, 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 and all the stuff falls out the sides, and you collect that, and that's your flour or your grain. So you can take the upper millstone off and scrape, and you know, that, so the upper millstone is kind of the movable part, a little bit smaller, not as heavy as the big base. So a woman takes a household implement, because this is what women did, this was a millstone, was typical kitchen implement, like a toaster, but a little heavier, takes it off, throws it off the tower, cracks his skull. Hurriedly, he called to his armor bearer, Abimelech, draw your sword and kill me so that they can't say a woman killed him. Even in death, his manly pride is hanging tough. So his servant ran him through and he died. When the Israelites saw that Abimelech was dead, they went home. Thus, God repaid the wickedness that Abimelech had done to his father by murdering his 70 brothers. God also made the men of Shechem pay for all their wickedness. The curse of Jotham, son of Jeroboam, came on them. Both parties got punished for the evil that they did. The irony of this story is full of irony. The the one who had slaughtered his brothers upon one stone 
ends up having his skull crushed with one stone. Um, there, is a, there, is, there is the theme of covenant violation and, um, and covenant retribution all throughout this chapter. And basically what God does in this chapter is says, okay, you want this guy to rule over you? You're going to experience what it's like. All of you. And he steps away. And he sends this, we, the text just says, a spirit of dissension, spirit of calamity, spirit of evil, whatever it is, to put a wedge between the two parties. And they act like Canaanite people act all throughout that time. And they rebel against their Lord after a few years. And he puts down the rebellion. And then he does so with overkill. And then he goes and gets greedy. And then he's killed. All of this is the legacy of Gideon. Jeroboam. This whole section. Gideon's legacy. Gideon was a hero. He had rescued Israel from Midian. He had been a good judge at the beginning of his reign. And then he slipped into... He let, didn't even slip. He ran headlong into idolatry. And that led the people into idolatry. And the people forgot Yahweh. And they embraced baal Barith, God of the Covenant, Lord of the Covenant as their God, one of the Baals. Baal had many forms in the ancient world in Canaan. So you'd have this Baal, that Baal, it just means Lord. So they paganized, they Canaanized, and as a result, God said, all right, I'm stepping back. But even behind the scenes, you see God ordering things so that ultimately justice was served, and ultimately the guilty parties paid for their evil that they had done, for the bloodshed that they had done. It's a very uh, stark reminder in this section in Israel's history that when Israel becomes Canaanites, God deals with them as Canaanites. And so Israel should learn from this, and the next judges who are raised up should be judges who wholeheartedly follow God, and the people should realize we can't choose a king over us because that's not what God wanted and we're not good at it anyway and every king that we decide we want is later going to come back to haunt us and that's true of every king of Israel to some degree so that's what we're left with at the end of this chapter it's a sad legacy and this is kind of the last time in judges when Israel uh, after this point Israel's pretty much completely bad um, that things get worse they're gonna get worse even than this but this is a taste of what it's like for Israel to be on the receiving end of breaking the covenant. And they're getting a taste of it. And remember, those of you that were with us for Deuteronomy, the whole book was a warning against this exact type of scenario. And generation after generation were called to listen and heed God's warning. And they didn't. And because they didn't, they were subject to rulers at the time who would rise up. And, and look at how Abimelech appealed to them. He appealed to their sense of nationalism. Hey, I'm one of you. You should put me in power. Who wants to be ruled by those people? I'm one of you guys. That's how nationalists gain power. You appeal to their nationalism. And then what did Gaal do later? Hey, I'm one of you. Who are we Shechemites to be under this Abimelech guy. He's an Israelite. We should, you know, Shechemites for Shechem. That kind of thing. Shechem first. Uh, two leaders in this appealing to that sense of nationalism. And you see that over and over throughout history. And you see it throughout biblical history. You see it throughout modern history. It's the easiest way to get people to be on your side is make them think you're one of them and that there's a foreign enemy oppressing them 
and they'll back you. And that's exactly what we see in Scripture. And guess what? God hates that. He's never liked it. Doesn't matter if it's Hitler, if it's Mussolini, if it's anybody else. Fill in the blank. God's never been cool with that. Hopefully one day Christians will learn that lesson. Um, but we got to go. We're 30 seconds over, so I want to be punctual. You guys have a great week. Next week, chapter 10, there's going to be an interim period, and then we're going to go into the second from the last Judges cycle, which will be Jephthah, uh, and then Samson after that, and then, then it gets really bad. So have a great week, everybody.